Welcome to the Broken City Podcast, episode uno. How do you say one in French? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is a podcast about life, music, art, stuff, oh. whatever we feel like. There's four people disaster. here, in case you're not seeing the video. Over here on the bass, we got... <laughs> Literally. Mike Jackson. Mike Jackson, also known as Jackson Percussion, also known as Michael. My name is Gannon Arnold. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Golf clap. He's a partner in crime in Broken City, the producer songwriter part of Broken City. There's lots of little parts. We'll get into that. I'm Adam Watts. To my left is the amazing singer songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> she is Irusi. Irusi, really are. Welcome. Good. Welcome. First guest ever. Nice. Yay. Glad to be here. Resident guest. guest. Feels, it feels <laughs> nice. I feel like there's less pressure. Than if you were what? Like having to run something. He was <laughs> part of it. So, quick little intro: how we all know each other. It's a crazy web. Mike and I go back to when I was 14 years old. Wow, that's when I met you. Dang. Mike was at the time also pretty young. 20, 20, 19 at that point. Oh God, what year was that? 90? 90, 91. Yeah. 91. Yeah, I, was I was two. <laughs> you were <I> two. <laughs> So yeah, You're I, was, market. I met you because I was in... <laughs> I was in three. Oh, Sorry. You're three? I don't know. I'm not sure. I was born in 89. Incredible gambit. So anyways, I was a young drummer and I went to Mission Viejo High School and joined the drum line. That's the reason I went to Mission Viejo. Like I lived in this one street in Mission Viejo where you could choose from three different high schools. And John Hannon, the band director at the time, he's still there? Yeah, still. Yeah. <clears throat> he came through Los Alisos, my junior high, and like was recruiting, like scoping out the young kids for who could come join the marching band. And he came up to me, he's like, You're going to mission. I'm like, really? And I, he gave me drum lessons that summer, and then. Is this pre puberty? This is. I was 14, so now it's probably like things were rolling a little bit. <laughs> I wasn't banned yet. And so, uh, yeah. Then I went to Mission, freshman year, went in, found competitive marching drumline world, and it became an obsession, and Mike was the battery instructor. Battery. Yep. You will play a paradiddle! <laughs> percussion director. Percussion director. Sounds better. It's a battery yes. instructor. What did you say? It's a battery and drums. Oh. The drums. Battery. Yeah, percussion yeah. director is more understandable to the outside oh. world. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You get that? <laughs> I understand that one. I'm going to come across really not smart in the first part of this podcast. Sorry, keep going. I'm right with you there. Yeah, yeah. so Adam was a prodigy kid. No goal. For sure. So how long after you met Mike did you meet Gannon, right? So I grew up kind of like under that world of like the drumline world. Mike was in a band called Sound and Fury. <laughs> We're gonna talk about that. Cats yes. out of the bag. <laughs> like, I was, like I love what that kind band. of music? Yeah. Like rage, raging metal? No, I wish. Oh, jazz. It's like more progressive <laughs> rock, right? Yeah, a prog, prog rock band. It's yeah. actually. Um, I wrote a lot of the material that we played, and it was. Um, there was like this, at least in my head, there was very little difference between writing a song, um, for my band, as as opposed to writing. Uh, composing a piece for the percussion ensemble, and which is 
if you try to picture that, like you're you're creating a composition for a percussion ensemble, and transfer that to to pop instruments. Whoa. Yeah, so that's very inaccessible music. I never knew that was the approach. You know what's funny yeah. about this? I don't. You talked about this once, but there was a song you had called "The Letter" mm-hmm. that actually was subconsciously inspired a song on my first record, "The Noise Inside," called "Critical Condition." Yeah. You know the one, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, when you heard it, you had you, you had know? to have been like, uh, "I've heard that before," because the group. It's I never I never realized the connection there. But, like, uh, I didn't either until I, until the song was done, and I was like, "Oh crap, what's that?" So there's gonna be a lawsuit going on here. <laughs> yeah, or don't sue me. <laughs> Can you copyright rhythms? But it was that. Uh, <laughs> yep. So, oh, I know what part you're talking about now. Yeah. That's the letter, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Mike was like a, a real proponent of polyrhythms and hemiolas. Do you know what a hemiola is? Hemoglobin. <laughs> but a hemiola is like a polyrhythm that has a, a rhythm attached to it, right? It's it basically, uh, well, there's a traditional hemiola, but the, the more uh, universal sense of hemiola is uh, a repetitious pattern uh, in, a, in a bass number other than your time center. So right. if you're in 3-4 and you do a bass 4 pattern, that would create a hemiola. Or yeah. if you're in 4-4 four, four and you do a bass 5 rhythmic pattern, um, that would be a hemiola as well. But a more traditional sense, like something that, that anyone could just latch onto, would be like Carol of the Bells. Or Chim Chimini from, you say Chim Chimini over and over again, that 3 against 2, so it's like this hand's doing 3, this hand's doing 2, so... That's traditional hemiola, but it, okay. it could be like if you're if you're here and you're going So you're doing five. How is your foot in a different world now? <laughs> That's amazing. I like the name. That's cool. I, I didn't I know that was like the definition actually changed when it got to the drumline world. I kinda of thought polyrhythm was the simple like and then Poly- hemiola would be shut to that. That would be more yeah, that's just, I mean, you could say four against three, five against three, whatever. I mean, that, yeah. that's kind of independent of polyrhythm or hemiola, but um, uh, polyrhythm could be anything. It could be over top of. No, it's just a rhythm over rhythm. Yes, the, poly, the poly. rhythm over rhythm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if uh, hemiola, it can get pretty sophisticated. You know, right. like, like I said, if you're in 4-4 four, four and you're doing, you're accenting every five sixteenth notes. Anyways, that world was like appealed to me as a drummer because I love it's kind of like drummer's magic in a way. It's like the the sense that something else is going on. That's like how is that happening? But it is. I live this parallel life of like going to in the percussion ensemble at Mission and like being super regimented and everything. Like ah, you suck. No, you're dirty. And not that Mike was that guy, but like. We became, you know, we're teenagers in this competitive world, and we're all trying to play perfect and stuff. So you're just like, got all this like, these crazy hormones going through you. And I just remember like, whoever was section leader was like the resident Hitler of the world. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It kind of wait, that was you. That was me for like three years. You were I know. resident Hitler. In my all sophomore right. year, like I did, I got like kind of like, ah! got all perfectionistic and and like. Because I was like appointed the leader. But Do you of course, like yell at people like you're not doing it right? 
Oh, and then show that your hands start to bleed, and then it was never like. like <laughs> 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 it was never like you're berating somebody personally, but you're all doing something that you're trying to do great, and nobody's screwing up on purpose. Mm-hmm. So you end up being like, "Oh, you're ticking." It would always be that kind of thing, and then there was a point actually where one of the drummers was like really hurt by how I was treating him. And I was—I felt so bad. I didn't even Sensitive realize. Sammy, what was his name? Don't say. It's kind of a, kind of a Frank, Frank Zappa vibe going on, like with the with the project. Like it's just yeah. The goal, the goal was execution, mm. like delivery of of perfection, mm-hmm. yep. rather than anything else. Like that was that was the goal. Not I like, would say that the goal also, though, that you instilled in the way that you taught was intensity. There was definitely an emotional goal. Yeah, to it. I'm not saying that was my goal. That was that was. It became the that goal. can happen culturally inside the membership. That's interesting. Yeah. It's not something that comes down from the top or, or by design. Mm-hmm. But you know, at that point, what, the years that you're talking about, I was still figuring out who I was and what my philosophy was. If you had asked me back then, you know, wh- why do you exist and what's the reason for the world, I, I wouldn't be able to answer you. Yeah, you know, you conveyed the same thing that you do now, but I think you're aware of it now. Or, yeah, because I think it appealed to an innate perfectionism in me and a desire to express myself. And then, being a kid, it's like it's Lord of the Flies a little bit. It's like you're you're young, you're like a new, you got all this new stuff going on just in being a person, and you're looking at the person next to you, and it's almost the same as like, you know the nerd bully scenario of just like wanting self-esteem and being competitive and oh you know she cuter than me or it's that same thing but it's just like it was drumming Mm. like I didn't live that out anywhere else in my life but it was like drumming meant everything and then you realize oh there's a person behind the drumming (laughs) and I remember learning that like finding your soul rather than being perfect kind of thing or it was like more that I that I was like looking at what we were doing and I was attached to it as like it was a part of my self-esteem and stuff mm-hmm. but as we're trying to create or perform it perfectly and I was appointed the section leader and I was like mm-hmm. oh we got, it's got to be great for ourselves and Mike's about to hear us like he wouldn't be there every second so then I would be like oh you're ticking or like I would hear what's wrong mm-hmm. which was my job sort of as section leader mm-hmm. Not realizing that every time I said, like, oh, you're dirtin' or whatever, that that person was like, I'm a bad person, or I suck, or I'm not as good as anybody else. And then I remember one time that the guy that um, was drumming with me, like, I think he said he wanted to quit. I remember looking at him, this makes me feel so bad right now, but he had sunglasses on, and he was feeling horrible, and I saw, like, a single tear emerged from behind his sunglasses oh, no. and I felt that like sucks. oh my god it was a real awakening for me yeah <clears throat> but anyways hashtag be nicer it, you yeah, know no just, just a note on that it's I don't think this is anything unique to um high school or just any any sort of yeah. team effort I think if we were talking about um you know varsity football mm-hmm. or any any sport anything yeah I think that that sort of that experience that new experience of feeling that that sense of pressure and having to deliver yeah. knowing, knowing that there's other people relying on you and this is it's it's a big deal when you're when you're actually standing in those shoes mm-hmm. like you're you have the mentality the, the brain of a, of a 15 or 16 year old and 
and you're dealing with some pretty heavy stuff. Because not but, only are you like trying to do something great for the sake of the group and you understand the group mentality, but your own ego and your own self-esteem is wrapped up in what you're doing and you feel like maybe the person next to you is actually getting in the way of that. So there's all those layers to it. It's really easy to get thrown off. Like I still deal with it to this day, just looking at the thing, wanting something to be great. And then, you know, like I, we had to talk about this kind of stuff recently where it's just like, it's easy to get so focused on the expression and like doing something great that you forget to like, that there's a human aspect. That's what it's all about in the first place. I think that's where the, uh, the, uh, the surprise comes from is we're not used to dealing with that as artists or musicians. Yep. And we're not brought up in that culture. So in that respect, it was something brand new to experience. In the this culture is a, of like competition? Yeah. yeah. Whereas if you grew up playing football or you grew up playing baseball and you just had that kind of team mentality and something like that were to happen, it sort of comes with the territory, like you mm -hmm. expect it. And for, like, in the case of Mission Viejo, it, it got really intense really quickly. Mm -hmm. And it had a bunch of young, passionate artists running the program. Mm -hmm. who weren't necessarily good at managing the psychology of, of the kids or yeah. ourselves. I mean, like speaking from just for myself, like yeah. it's just in the last, I would say, 10 years, I've been able to wrap my head around, like, what have I been doing with my life? Yeah. <laughs> what, and I look at the body of work, I look at how much I've done, how, how far I've come just, just in, a, in a linear matter, manner. And it's, uh, it's crazy. Because that, that is, um, I mean, everybody has these experiences, but when you're, in, when you're wrapped up in those experiences and you're, you're dealing with young kids, like you're teaching, yeah. so you're in a teacher role. I mean, it's one thing to have these ups and downs and, and to try to deal with your own psychology, mm -hmm. but when you're also having a, a daily effect on young people, it's like, whoa, did I, <clears throat> did I hurt feelings? Did I shake people in the wrong way? Like, there's a lot of... Like, I wouldn't say guilt, but it's it's the potential of guilt, the mm. pondering guilt. Yeah, you know? pondering. Yeah, the the, yeah. the, the uh, domino effect, I guess, of what you're doing. And I I took a lot of that with me. My experience is both, you know, being taught and taking something really seriously and trying to be great as a young kid, in a kind of a regimented way, but all for the sake of of expressing something that was obvious to me the whole time that it was like it was about. Back, you know, it was intensity, but you always were, like, about dynamics and, like, it wasn't just about chops. So, like, that was huge. And when I became a producer, you know, like, it's funny that role reversed in a completely different way when <clears throat> I did a lot of work for Disney. And there I was, like, in a sort of, you know, in a producer role, but there was a lot of times when people come in and they need to be, have their hand held through a scenario where they're learning something new and you're, you're being sensitive because they're, like... <clears throat> There's nothing more sensitive to singing in front of a microphone, especially when you're like not 100% sure of what you're singing, or maybe I've done a lot of first sessions with singers and stuff that are people who are actors and singers, and it's like, it's intense. Those early experiences definitely shaped how, you know, the empathy factor in production and like just working with other artists. There's nobody more sensitive than I am, and yet there's nobody who can forget about the human side when they're focused on the technical like me so like I've been in both shoes and it's like it's 
definitely a struggle. I think that's like just your connection to me and Lucy. Yeah. yeah, is and it's, that's a, a perfect example. I think of of uh, maybe that early connection that we had. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as trying to get say the right things, nurture, don't you know bash somebody over the head looking for a performance. I think it's the same with like any great Hollywood director, like just knowing mm-hmm. let the actors act, give them the freedom to explore the character and and come up with some sense of truth out of the out of the performance. Try to capture that. Yeah, yeah the best thing I've noticed is like um and I think I've heard this somewhere else, so this isn't a new idea, but just the almost like when the bumpers are there and, and when you're bowling, it's like you're there to, to nudge. I've never used the bumpers. <laughs> just kidding. That's a big old lie. <laughs> but yeah, that's just that analogy of like if everything's going right, don't screw it up. And then if it's going over here, just nudge. Yeah. Like what? Um, so, oh, so we'll start over here because we met later. So back to the history lesson. Keep getting thrown off, but like Gannon brings. I want on. everybody listening to kind of Gannon, know what who were you doing in 1991? I don't remember. Think Carter. <laughs> I remember for you. You guys are recording. Bob's out of high school. He's <laughs> working out as a waitress at a cocktail bar. <laughs> I know the line. So you, uh, you were obsessed with fusion and jazz guitar. Yeah. At least when I met you, <clears> I, lived, I was living the parallel lives of being in the regimented drum corps style thing and then wanting, you know, trying to be a great drum set player and those things were feeding each other but then I had a drum teacher on the side who I think you recommended for me, right? Did you know Evan Stone? I knew Evan Stone but I can't remember I think how I came you. in contact with him. I think you'd met, I think you're the one that led me to him so I went and took lessons from him. You know, I don't, th- I don't think so. Really? I think I met him after... Okay. After I don't know who that was. If you're out there, I thought email. Gannon was playing with him. I was a lot. He was. Band that's how I met Gannon. Yeah. Oh, is I was getting drum lessons from Evan Stone, who was a much. It was like polar opposites, drumming and 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 a percussion ensemble, and then going and getting taught by Evan, who couldn't have been more loose and and like about feel and out those. It was interesting dichotomy there, but I remember being in his house getting a lesson one time yeah. um, and he was a really inspiring teacher by the way uh, and you walked through his room like just like dark man <laughs> like you just did not want to look at me real fun guy but... <laughs> weird because it's the opposite of your personality but like you came yeah. in and you were just, just like Meh. unless you were in away. work mode were you in work mode you probably don't remember it, right? I don't remember that part now we used to rehearse there oh okay so Maybe I was waiting for him to finish up your lesson so we could... That's probably what it was. I was just a scared little kid. (laughs) So, (laughs) big man walks through, walks out, and he's like, oh, that's Gannon, he's in my band. Minimum three. His band. Minimum three! Yeah, dude. I remember that. Wow, that just took me back. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Blast, yeah. Yeah, we were a jazz fusion trio. Cool. And we're all all played together in high school. Can I find that on YouTube? No. Are you sure? Oh, I want to. I don't think so. I don't know. No way. The only footage we have is from Evan's parents. They oh. <laughs> have YouTube back then. It's on a VHS. Yeah, it's on a VHS somewhere. <laughs> Hidden. So, I graduated from high school, and I'm 19, and I'm now starting to like play. I did one year of Saddleback College, and then went around and got some gigs in the cover band scene in Orange County. 
And Evan called me up to sub for him on a jazz gig at Steamers, which, funnily enough, is like, they just closed, but actually they're like three miles from here where we're doing this podcast. And Gannon was on that gig. And I remember it was a straight-ahead jazz gig, and I was way more into like fusion and funk and rock and progressive music. And, and I was like, holy crap, jazz. Like, I sort of know, but I don't know jazz. <laughs> like... I knew jazz like Vinnie Calyuta, you know, like fusion. He just so said I, yes to it. I just yeah, because he knew I could pull it off. Oh, okay. And I could, but I didn't live that music, so I was like, I knew what I didn't know, and I was like, all right. So I studied this one Miles Davis record with Tony Williams on it, oh. like freaking crazy, because he was the drummer that I connected to the most, jazz wise, because he was a really heavy handed, like pushing. And I came into the gig with like practicing that having to reverse my mentality because like funk and the music that I was into was like kick and snare was like where you anchor it and jazz is like ride symbol so mm -hmm. it's like turning your life upside down as a drummer to be all about the ride and so I did that and I came in and like after the first set you said yeah yeah man I like it it's kind of you, you have like a Tony Williams thing and I was like ah. <laughs> <laughs> it worked I fooled him. <laughs> and I took, it, I took it as like a half compliment. I'm like, oh, I want to be me. But you're right. I did do that. Remember, I just kept going. Do you need triplety things? So do you remember that night? No. You don't? No. Just How could you? You were just another drummer. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to figure out. He just goes, no. <laughs> no, I don't. I cannot remember that gig for the life of me right now. Do you remember? Okay, so let me help you remember. Okay. Lay down. <laughs> well, what happened was we started talking about like where we live. We found out we live right. like a mile from each other. But and I remember then playing. You were like, you're like, oh, so do you like record? I'm like, yeah, I record my drums and I do these. I write these instrumental songs and stuff. And you were like, oh, cool. I have this thing. I like write pop music. I'm doing mm -hmm. this record. Yeah. And you're like, be cool to connect and do. Maybe you could record some drums. Right. And that's how it all started. What happened to me is I was playing with Minimum 3 a lot. So it was like jazz fusion. We were playing local stuff here in California, like the Coach House. And we'd open up for all these big jazz acts and stuff. And then one day, because I, I grew up on classic rock and, you know, I, I was born in the 70s. So, you know, we both, all of us really, come from that era, except for you. You're not part of that. But you know what the 70s are. But you know what it sounds like. You know what the 70s are. Yes. But yeah, so I grew up listening to classic rock. You know, and all that kind of stuff. So, went to that phase, went to the jazz phase, and then I listened to this guy, Todd Rundgren. And it just, for some reason, when I heard his record, I like flipped out and go, I want to be a singer songwriter. Like, I want to be that guy. So, I started writing music and I started like trying to come up with stuff like that, which couldn't have been any more out of step with the 90s. Like, I was so like retro, you know, like Todd Rundgren was like a 70s artist, you know, yeah. 80s, 70s, 80s. So, and then that's when we hooked up because you had your, you, he had this uh, four track recorder and he was making these killing. The Fostex. Yeah, but the drums sounded awesome. Yep. I was like, dude, that is good. I was so. obsessed my whole time through high school. I had one little mixing board. But it sounded amazing. A MIDI verb. Like you had it together. So I was like, well, this is perfect timing. Cause yeah. I'm like doing all this kind of like popish stuff. I was in the mm -hmm. Seal too. And mm -hmm. I mean, we had similar influences. Yeah, I like Sting and Fears and Sting. Gabriel. Gabriel. <laughs> Who? Sorry. You like I 
glommed onto your word and just said what you said. <laughs> it's like a mix. It was kind of a fun magic time because we were making a. I was making the CD, and it, we didn't. It was like a, during a time when you didn't care about anything having to do with commerciality. Those were the days. Like you weren't worried about that stuff. You were just, you know, I was living with my parents, so I yeah. have to like pay any rent. So I'm like, I'm making a record. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it's like, but it was really freeing artistically because you didn't have to worry about the economics of making a record. You weren't picking singles. You weren't worrying about like. You know, any of this stuff. It's like right. today you worry about. You're like, this, all, a lot of people are obsessed with how you get that stuff happening. But. Yeah, the only economics where I need a thousand bucks to print a thousand CDs and yeah. I've made it in my own life. Or a girlfriend. Or a girlfriend. Or, a girlfriend. or exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's make a record or have a girlfriend. <laughs> that too. But that was a great experience because we made that record together. Yep. And you couldn't make, making a CD was a commitment, like you are just saying, it was expensive. It was like a thousand yeah. bucks to make it make the artwork and all that stuff. My dad was a graphic artist, so he helped me with it. I remember that. But all that artwork did I did. Did you, like, cut if it you could only things, see it. You know, the, the do you cutting? know what I'm talking about? Like, the cutting board? Do you, like, do it all yourself? I think he... No, you ordered No, it. no, he did a graphic. It was He did it on computers. Nice. But I know what you're talking about, yeah. Our but first record, we had to cut, like, 700 pieces of paper and slide them into Oh, so the you were doing it, like, oh, like that's old We school. had a company do it. It was oh. disc, disc makers. That's cool. Oh, yeah. yeah there's personal around. connection yeah. here. Yeah. In media. Yeah. But it was great. That, in that was a fun experience, yeah. though. I mean, like, yeah. looking back on that time, it's like, I'll never have that again. You know what's funny, too, is that that cool. period in music was pretty special. I don't think we're far enough away from it yet to quite look at it. I mean, we look at Kurt Cobain, and I guess when, when somebody dies and they're part of a big period of music, you look at it. But I think the mid... The mid '90s were really special in their own way because it's like you still had you know Soundgarden and those bands that came out of Seattle rolling, but then there was this whole influx of like singer songwriters and Cheryl Crow and Sean Colvin and Paula Cole, Alanis Morissette, Alanis yeah. Morissette. Then you had the Britpop invasion again, Oasis and Blur. There's a lot of singer songwriters. There's a lot of different stuff happening at the same time. I think that's why it kind of felt like being a singer songwriter, however you wanted to do it, was fine because it was rock ones. Mm -hmm. yeah. Really like acoustic -y ones. There was like the alternative country of Sheryl Crow, and Sting was still viable yeah. in that in that world of pop then. And now he's he's doing like loot records and whatever the heck he wants because he's Sting. Yeah, but you people were buying records then too. So like if you yes. made a project that was yeah. viable, people would buy it. They could just steal it or yeah. watch it on YouTube. So it had that or effect Spotify. too, or Spotify. That's true. But we were talking about jumping subjects here, but we were talking about that as well. Like today's music, though, in a way, is, is, is just as cool in the sense that you there's no specific genre. Yeah. Like in the 90s and the 80s, 70s, sure. it was all genre-based. Yeah. Like when I was growing up in 7th and 8th grade, it was like you were metalhead or you were a new romantic <laughs> or you were like, you know, like they had very segregated points of views. Yeah. Um, you had a leather jacket or an eyes you're listening to, Yeah, you're listening to Haircut 100 Duran Duran or you're listening to Motley Crue and Ozzy. I didn't, I didn't yeah. listen to that stuff. Yeah, you did it. Uh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I also had the, uh, the the Motley Crue tape. I did too. Too fast for love, man. <laughs> tape. But I had today a Bob you don't Carlisle have that. Butterfly kisses tape. <laughs> it's really what? hard to say. Bob Carlyle butterfly kisses. Oh my gosh, that song. <laughs> I don't know I that to, song. I used to play yeah. that on my. Um, what's it called? I saw that guy sing it live the one thing, time. The thing, boombox. 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 The ghetto Blaster. Yeah. Ghetto Blaster. <laughs> Wait, did I have one of those? Yeah. Oh, and during the 80s, you also had that music, too, which guys would bring their cardboard out, and they'd oh, break yeah. dance. Yeah. Like cardboard. Early hip-hop. 
Yeah. So you had that segregation too. So you had like the hip hop guys or like the early version of that, and then you have the new wave stuff and then the rock stuff. I was just listening to Dumb Girl by Run DMC and that was last like, night, showing my wife. Like, what is this? Dumb Girl, Dumb Girl. <laughs> yeah. Dumb. But that was mind blowing because they had done a song with Aerosmith. Remember that? And they yeah. did Walk This Way. Yeah. Walk This Way. And it was like, that was the first fusion of rock and hip hop. Yeah, it's a you huge know. deal. That was Rick Rubin. Yeah. Right? Yeah, pretty Yeah, stuff. totally. <clears throat> but today I think it's just as exciting because you're not, I mean, it's harder to sell music and it's hard to get music like heard because there's so much of it being made. But it's also exciting in the sense is that you can pave a path, you know, there's a way of, to get through somehow. Oh, the internet has changed everything monumentally. Yeah. In a, mostly good ways and then a few, more than a few uh, ways it's made it kind of harder to. Oh, yeah. To monetize th- it. To think your way through how you're going to work it all out. I mean, just well, the I business think, has been turned on its head. I think that makes it all the more important that what you do means something. Right. That it's yeah. it's truthful and that it's there's a authenticity and a genuine, you know, nothing contrived. Yeah, because no matter how, I mean, technology has changed, like, drastically, but human beings are the same. They respond to the same mm-hmm. stuff. There's just so much more happening all the time than there used to be. So it's like right. it's hard to, to grab, keep the attention span. Yeah, to grab the attention, like you said, it yeah. has to be believable, and well, not even believable. It has to be true. And I think it helps deal with it psychologically from the the person actually doing the art. Yeah. yeah. As well, because then you're less centered on acceptance, and you're more centered on the fact that you expressed yourself. Totally. You're not, yeah, you're not right. looking for anything in, in return, really. I mean, if, if it happens, it happens. But Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if there's some kind of public unified consciousness happening because of the Internet where we're all... I'll be curious to see if this is like a wave, the, the whole like intolerance for boredom and the idea that you always... Like, I can't... Like, I sit down to go pee so I can be on my phone. <laughs> Fun fact. I literally I just want something like cool to do at all times and I don't like I fall asleep with my laptop on a pillow and my headphones on and I wake up and I grab my phone and I'm like the coffee. Mm-hmm. Like and that feels like the right thing. Like why should I not look at something that could be cool? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wonder if that whole thing will actually be a wave like right now we're obsessed with it it's like we first like well it's already starting to change like even things with all these Instagram accounts being like this isn't real yeah when Instagram used to be like oh my gosh their life is perfect and now there's all these realizations yeah that it's not real and then even with artists it's like we need to be real we need to be honest we need to create a following and a tribe of people and like if we have a hundred then we have a following you know, and it builds from there. Like, there's... It's snapping people back are to the starting. Reverse. That's like the... That's how everything goes, usually. We have right? to go to the full... You have to take it all the way somewhere. Well, it goes to Before both extremes it back, until you, know? you get to it's the extreme, middle. exactly. It's true. We're living in a very extreme society of, like, mm-hmm. social media and overload of, of, you know... What do you call it? Um, electronic overload, you know? Well, yeah. reminds me electronic of overload. <laughs> that's our new My next band. band. <laughs> Reminds me of that philosopher that said, um, what's his name? Spider Man. That guy's good. With great power comes great responsibility. Oh, yeah. Or was his dad? Aristotle. That's the guy. Drew Spider Man, I think. Drew Spider Man. Drew Spider Man. 
<laughs> Andrew. Andrew. Andrew Spiderman. It's true though. It's like a super powerful tool. You can. It's like shooting ideas with a gun all around the entire world. Be everywhere. <laughs> but like, it's in your brain right now. Shout out What's to Andy May for that. Oh yeah. So that's how we met each other. Mm-hmm. Back to that. Um, and so we started recording, and, and then when I was 19, we were about roughly a year into it. And I was in this other band called Bulkhead, and then we were called Bulkhead and Family Wagon. On tour with Electronic Overload. <laughs> On tour with Electronic Overload. Oh, my God. Um, and then I started to get really opinionated about your songs, mm-hmm. which were fine, but I was like, I want it to be like this. Yeah. And I was like punching you in on the ADATs and your recording, so I was like really involved with mm-hmm. your stuff. But it was your stuff, and right. I was the drummer. Right. And then I, I'd, I'd always been composing stuff like on piano and sequencer. But you're like, dude, lay off my tunes and write your own. And I was like, really? <laughs> I don't remember saying that either. But did I? I must have. You didn't say it like that. It's not but, your it was, style. but that was the general idea. The general idea was like, why don't you write your? Oh, like yeah, it was probably yeah, like yeah, a yeah. different day. Or just yeah, bro, bro, write your own songs, man. But uh. That's when I started writing songs and singing, and I, I borrowed your ADATs and wrote a song called Live and Learn. Still know that hook. Live and Learn and Let Go. Some, yeah, I was trying to write something important. <laughs> Living and Learning. And you would play guitar on my stuff, and then I'd play drums on your stuff, and we just went back and forth for literally hundreds of songs. Yeah. That's awesome. And then, um, blah, 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 let's flash forward, because that was sort of, that's a good little background for who Broken City is. Which is Gannon and I as writer producers, working with artists, developing artists, and I, I put out my own records, and me and Mike go way back. And it's just been announced a few weeks ago that um, formerly the percussion ensemble known as OCI became now known as Broken City, mm-hmm. which is really awesome. It's cool, it has like even like a special deep meaning to me that that has even happened, and that we're joining forces like this, because we've been in touch for the last 20 years, but it's only been the last year that we've really come back, spent a lot more time together, and um, we'll talk more about this in future podcasts, but developing some you know, educational arts ideas for in a community around artists that are looking at things in a, in a holistic way, bringing the entire person, and just dealing with the psychology like we talked about earlier, right. along with the physiology of technique, and spirituality, and concepts and philosophy and stuff but that's kind of how we've come together and decided to do this podcast is that we're trying to bring all our ideas together and our kind of shared sensibilities about life and art i think the the parallel pathway thing was it's a, huge like a cool realization that yeah that there's 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 a little bit of not feeling like you belong in the career path that you've chosen like mm-hmm. there's something out of place doesn't feel quite fulfilling like where it needs to be yeah. on on both ends on my side on your side totally and then just discussing that and talking about it and sort of like sharing our our little war stories back and forth realizing that that's like the same it's the same emotional response it's the same psychological things happening yeah in different worlds Completely different worlds. Yeah. Like, you're dealing with 
you know, younger people a lot of the time in those worlds, different organizations from high schools to colleges to independent organizations to nonprofits, but you're dealing with the arts. And then I'm dealing in a lot of it's the corporate world of, of the arts, you know, big record labels. and But it's the same core psychological stuff, like you just said. It's like you're, you're wanting to do something great. You're wanting to do something pure and expressionistic and connect people. And then there's these other ideas of what it should be, like competition or right. making money or all the stuff that ends up being like the tail starts wagging the dog. Mm. And then you're just frustrated. Everybody deals with this stuff. Yeah, like it's your, it's your uh, the way you put it is art meets commerce. Mm. And that's the, it's almost a conundrum. It's, yeah, and then on, on my end, it's just art meets competition. It's the same. That's it's almost true. the same. Flash forward, a lot of years in there of working with the great and talented Andy Dodd as Red Decibel, wrote this song called Beautiful Soul that ended up getting recorded by Jesse McCartney and it became a big hit. Andy and I signed to Disney and within a couple of years we were working with a band called Everlife. Yep, which was my band that I started when I was eight. And we started, well, was that 97? That's when no, we no, no. started that, yeah. actually performing. But that was two thousand. Oh yeah, um, so that's interesting. Yeah. The only time me and Gannon were doing doing our thing, collaborating. I had this m moment of I want to sing songs and I don't want to be alone and I want my sister to join me. So we started singing, performing together. Two sisters. Yeah, two older sisters, Amber and Sarah. I was eight years old, performing and writing our own songs. I get to tell um, that story. Well, okay, um, we started our band, and my we didn't know what to sing. I just knew, like, I love singing. This is my favorite thing to do ever. Um, and we had grown up in the church, and all I wanted to do was, our parents were in youth ministry, and I was like, if I could sing and make people happy, like my parents make people happy, then I'll be happy, and it'll be super fun, and everybody will have a great time and be happy. So that was my mindset at eight. Happy. <laughs> happy. I just want everybody to be happy. And I was the youngest child, too, so it's like this weird obsession. <clears throat> but um, we, I was like, well, we have to write positive, happy songs. So, like, but we, somebody told us that it was illegal to sing other people's songs. It was illegal. This was in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Wait, I was playing with Legos when I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> I love Legos. They're going to hurt, though, when you step on them. Anytime I, think, <laughs> I think of Legos, I think of the pain of forgetting to clean them up. And it's always, it was always like a tour. It was the one oh, with the tour. Yes. It was a tour. Oh, and they're sitting, they're like sitting up. They're sitting up on the carpet. You know, <laughs> upside down. Upside down. Oh, it's even sharper. And you miss, you always miss that when you clean it up and then you step on a tour. Anyway, back to new. New song idea. Love of you is like stepping on Legos. <laughs> stepping on a tour. Um, anyway. Um, so that started when you were eight, which is in like 97. Eight told us it was illegal to uh, sing other people's songs, so we started writing. And then toured and met people who knew somebody else, who knew somebody else at Disney. This was years after, um, in 2000-something. Um, Must have been four or five, right? Yeah. And we signed to Hollywood Records um, and ended up working with Adam and Andy here in California. And it was super super fun and we had a great time and then we went on tour for another 
few years, and then my sisters and I decided to. Um, what were the tours? Oh, uh, we did um, Cheetah Girls tours, like a six, seven month thing where it was great. It was an awesome tour. It was an arena tour. Um, but Miley came out at the, in the middle of it. It was her first actual tour. Um, and Miley Johnson? Miley Johnson. Miley Cyrus came out. Actually, Hannah Montana. She was. Oh, she, she came toured out as Hannah her. Montana then. Yeah. Um, and then that tour ended, and I had actually um, known the family before Hannah Montana started, because we were all, she got signed, it's really confusing, I'm making this really confusing, aren't I? It's not too hard to follow. <laughs> okay, good. You um, were eight, and Her sister was my eight. best friend, and yeah. we got, that's how everything got connected. Um, and then we, like lots of years later, decided we were going to end the band, and then I started doing my solo stuff, and that's why I'm sitting here right now. <laughs> Flash forward. You know what's funny is Miley's very first Disney session was here at this studio and that is crazy. I before, did not know that. Before this place was built, which this is like the studio that was built by Disney royalties. I remember <laughs> looking out the window in that house and seeing dirt. Oh yeah. Like we're, we're I look I'm like I could see it right now. It was just like dirt and grass and stuff and just like that's right land like, with yeah. the him talking about like the idea of like this is what it's gonna look like a building studio Whoa, over there and so crazy. now i'm here yeah all the time it's pretty crazy that's like eight years later yeah yeah so she she was the first session here she was like maybe 13 when she miley got was. yeah miley and um remember she went into the vocal booth to do the song it was called just like you on the first Hannah Montana album and her mom was there um, Tish was sitting on the couch and Miley went in did her vocal and sang great it was like oh this is awesome um, with her cute huge voice <laughs> like makes you smile and like came out and she had written all over her arms with Sharpie like literally from like her shoulder lyrics are just just <laughs> I love so and so Miley Cyrus with a heart for yeah. an eye, like, just, like, she was sleeved and sharpie, and then later on, I looked at the lyric sheet, same thing, completely couldn't see the lyrics anymore, and her mom was just like, Molly, what did you do? She's like, oh. <laughs> I actually have a picture of her shrugging her shoulders. Like, That's hilarious. That's hilarious. That's funny, yeah. So going back that far with her, and then, so anyways, flash forward to now, like, I called... Oh, I texted you. Yes. I was about to sign. This was like months after Everlife decided we were going to kind of throw in the towel and made our last record, which was awesome because it was it was everything that we ever wanted. Um, but we um, ended the band, and I was like, okay, like this is the time that I'm really going to dive in to my solo career, and this is what I want to do, and I just I need to try it. I have to do it because if I don't, then I'll super regret it. So um, I was about to sign with this different uh, production team in Nashville, and Adam, out of the blue, texted me um, and asked me what I was doing. And I was like, yo, I'm working on my solo career. And he's like, finally, this is awesome. I want to be involved somehow. Come out to California and ride with us. Um, <clears throat> kind of told me what him and Gannon were doing. Um, Completely I, random, by the way. I had no idea you were... 
there's yeah. no other production team or anything. Or so, that I was even yeah. diving into doing it on my own. Yeah, I was actually mind. just like, please, Lord, say that she's just ready to do something new, because Gannon and I have been, we worked with a couple artists in like a development capacity, and we just wanted to do it more and do it, and do it with a great singer who, like, I just, your name just popped into my head, and I was like, oh, I just remember that session being so, you were probably 16 or 17 years old at the time, and just being completely blown away like I'd never been before by a singer and by just you and your sister's vibe. Like, we all just had a super great time. Mm -hmm. Like, I just remember you were like, do not use auto I'm like, we don't really need to. It was just incredible. So, and your tone. I remember we worked with you pre and post tonsillectomy. Oh, yeah. But there's this interesting, like, you got your tonsillectomy and you came back and your voice sounded even crazier. You got that song, we did um, Reflections for some yeah. kind of like a cover thing. thing but that was my first session that was my first time singing after I got my tonsils out yeah and it had been like forever because my recovery was really horrible for some reason just my my life luck um and it was so hard for me to sing I came out of my surgery and I was talking like a mouse and my sisters were like it's oh. all over our career is done like, because I was the lead singer. And Did your voice like, change, though, as the end result? Yeah. Like, if you listen um, to our old record, actually, our Disney record, actually, Everlife's Disney record, or Hollywood Records record, um, there's, like, five songs on there that are pre-surgery, and the rest of them are after, and you can tell of the tone. You can tell the tone change in my voice. It's, it's so actually, weird. You're like a cyborg. It's like <coughs> you're half human. That happened, that happened to my daughter. Right. Really? Yeah, it, it really freaked me out. Did it open? Did it sound like it, she, did her it voice? Open it up? I can't remember. Obviously, her her old voice, but it was so her, and then she got her tonsils out, and then completely different voice. Like, wow. Different, they like trying to relate that voice to the same person. The person is it's that's it's a weird fascinating. Trick. Yeah. It's like changing yeah, the man. the body out on a guitar. Yeah. But she was a kid. So I was just you were an adult, obviously, when that when that happened, right? Late teens? 17. Oh. Or 18. Right, it was, yeah. I was 18. It actually weird. enhanced... I like I like my voice listening to it way better. I had a lot of insecurities about my tone before because it was just sounded super closed and kind of froggish to me. Hmm. And I would have... This was just my own insecurities, but I would have to constantly fight against sounding that way. And it was because, this is going to be so gross, I can't believe I'm sharing it, but my tonsils were like the largest tonsils they had seen because I had let it go for so long. Because um, we were on tour and I didn't have time to get the surgery, so I just had like strep throat and that infection or whatever for almost a year and singing through it. So like they were so enlarged and infected that it like when we recorded, it... Like, I don't know how to singing through it. a little straw, probably. Yeah, <laughs> and like I had to like fight it, and I had to like, change things in my voice, and like if I couldn't hear on stage, it, my tone would change. It was so weird, but Whoa. I'm so happy that they're gone. I like the way that I sound a lot better. Yeah, you showed me an early recording in Nashville, it's and I was weird. like, "Whoa!" I could hear the you in it. Yeah. No, no question, but it was definitely like, and really, probably your real voice was more like it is now anyway, because you're so swollen. 
Yeah. All the time, like just so trying to change your voice. Get your tonsils out. Yeah, it's like a <laughs> boob job for your throat. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, Sound like we'll delete that later. Kind of. But yeah, but there, there's definitely there's an insane timbral harmonic quality to your voice that blows my mind. Like, Thank you. That's like one of the things. I pay you to say those things. Just kidding. It's good money. <laughs> a <laughs> whole dollar. A Chuck E. Cheese token. <laughs> is that what that was? No, I don't know what that is, but it's definitely big money. I have this weird. I got lunch today. He's like, "What you want?" He's like, "He gave me that." He's like, "It's gold." I was gonna bite on it to see if it was. Aren't you supposed to bite on gold to see if it's real? That's almost not even metal. It's like tin foil. Tin foil. Tim. Tin. 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 Tin foil. Pass it around. You're really so, militant about the difference between an E and an I in a word. T- well, you said, okay, say pen. Pen. Sounds like a pen. It sounds like you're saying pen. <laughs> same thing people say milk or milk. You figured out the context milk, of what I'm saying. Milk, milk, it's that friggin' guy that said it. I was just about to <coughs> really describe how amazing your voice is. I started to get uncomfortable. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Maybe I should play the theme about... song again. <laughs> yeah, you should. Can it help us out here? Anyway, so you... <laughs> It, we started working together a lot. And I came here and Gannon was like, he hated me. He couldn't stand me. You're boring. <laughs> I walked in the door and Gannon said, nope. Nope. Not this one. Adam kept saying yes, so I was like, all right. But I had to give him the Chuck E. Cheese tokens. We, we brought you in. We, we, we dealt with it. Yeah. <laughs> now we have a good body of work. We do. It's all that, all that matters. The relationship is just, you know. Yeah, we hate each other. Behind the scenes doesn't matter. It's what gets put in the EP that matters. (laughs) It's true. Now you're the Hitler of this game. No, none of that is true. We are having. We're gonna have an EP up soon, though. We are. Oh yeah. We have lots of amazing. Four songs for the masses. Yep, we've recorded over thirty. Yeah. Since that time, that was like two years ago. Mm Mhm. You were still on the Miley tour. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Explain a little bit about that. So this is the in between. The in between life of Everlife and Irusi times. Oh, yeah. um, I we had a I don't remember what Everlife was on a break because we weren't on tour. We had just finished our our Europe run that we booked ourselves and we were super exhausted. It was awesome, but we were just dead tired. Then we came home and then three days later I was like, oh my god. This is not, I can't stay home. Like, I need to, like, I love touring. I love traveling. And um, Miley's manager, Jason Morey, had called me and um, was like, yo, there's a show happening. Our backup singer um, is pregnant. She's unable to fly for the shows in um, Madrid, I believe. Um, and can you, this was like a, in a week. He's like, just come out, play the show, um, and you'll come home. It's only like a 10-day trip or something. So I had to learn like, I don't remember, like 20 songs or something in four days. And, the, and all the, the harmonies to 20 songs, not yeah. just the song. The learning the song, like the entirety of the song. I knew some of them, um, but all the parts. So like that, the, the backup singer, she's the sweetest person. She took the time while super miserable and pregnant to like, she sang her parts like, or they recorded her parts, but she, like, was sitting, like, on a couch, like, at a rehearsal, 
recording her parts for me so they could send them to me to learn them. Oh, that's nice. And I woke up and fell asleep to it just playing for three days in my head. And then on the fourth day, I started to sing to it. Because, like, subconsciously you start to memorize things. But if, like, you, like, really dive into or for me at least, like, if you, if I, like, dive into it right away, like, that much that you have to, like, fill your brain mm -hmm. with. Anyway, I memorized it subconsciously and then started rehearsing it. And then I only missed one word in the entire show. That's Whoa. great. And That's I was crazy. Like, yes. Um... But anyway, I did that show and... What what tour was that? What album for her? Oh, uh, Can't Be Tamed. Okay. It was for Can't Be Tamed and then that was five and a half years ago and I've Whoa. stayed ever since with her um, and that team and what's so crazy did, is... What? I was going to say, how did it feel to go from fronting Everlife as the lead singer, like touring arenas, like... That's like what seventy five to fifteen thousand people, like seventy five hundred. Yes, mm -hmm. Huge places, owning the crowd. You're the focal point. You're, you always did like the harmonies and and like arranged all the vocals mm -hmm. and life. So you had that background vocal experience, but obviously mm -hmm. you're used to being the lead singer. Mm -hmm. So was it that was... weird on the like? <clears throat> what was it like? To be like oh well background. I thought that it was just gonna be that one show so like I had always when we were on a break and then my sisters and I were on breaks I would never take any kind of backup singing job because I was like ah, I don't really want to do it um, but I loved Miley and I loved her family and the whole team of people that toured with her like her crew and her band like they were like my family because we had toured with them before oh, right. Hannah Montana so I knew all the people and I was like this is gonna be fine it's going to be weird, and it's probably going to be hard, but I'm going to be comfortable, and I'm going to be around people that, I don't know, that are that are cool and that I know. Like, I know the, where I'm going. So I did that show, and I was like, that was fun. There was no pressure whatsoever, other than seeing in front of, like, 50,000 people with a set that I didn't even, I didn't really know that well, but it, because in the back of my mind, I was thinking, like, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. Was there any sort of choreography or is just like your charisma up there it was more it was mostly that there weren't yeah. like there were like some moves like hand thing or whatever <laughs> or like backup singing thing but it was more like she's super chill she's never really had like crazy dance move stuff she did for Hannah Montana but this right. was a Miley Cyrus thing and she's just very like just do your thing and just just move and, and be in it and so you were um, able to like let go a lot of the those layers of being a lead singer where you're oh, yeah. like, putting on a show. All of the pressure of being a lead singer and being in the front was off for that show. And I was like, that was really cool because I just got to support and sing. And, like, I always did harmony, but I never actually really did it behind somebody. Um, and it was super fun. And then it got hard after I started, like, act, like doing it more. And then I'm like, well, crap, like, ugh. Hard like you miss it, or hard... Hard like I miss being the front person. Mm -hmm. Which I think would happen with anybody that that is in the front. Um, and then I started loving it again. Like, I just I always went up and down with it. Because it's like, well, this is awesome. Like, this is an incredible job. Love the people. I'm making money. I get to sing and friggin' travel the world doing everything that I love. Yeah, so. there's something about being part of a group, again, like... Being the bass player, or the drummer, or just somebody in the band, 
you like you know what your role is, and you and you're you can focus on like music first and entertainment as like a extra thing or I don't know it's different like craftsman yeah you mm-hmm. can focus on the craftsman side bring as much art to it as possible and there's something really cool about knowing what that is and being able to go up there and like bam so I imagine that's like the musician in you because you're not just a singer you're like you play piano you play guitar you have a musician's approach to singing I guess mm-hmm. I had some similar to that and I for me it was it felt like a recharge mm. like a time to just take mm-hmm. a break Take when a, you played, t- when you toured? No, this is uh, in in uh, teaching and oh, okay. composing um, and being, you know, the trying to be the, the creative um, force behind a project to being a piece of the pie, like a, a cog uh-huh. in a bigger machine. And, you know, I, I did it for five years, like four and a half years, mm. and it, it really allowed me to just kind of reset yeah, recharge and then when sense. I came out of that situation I felt like I felt ready to go yeah creatively yeah that's interesting yeah. that definitely was what I would call that period of time because once we um, I know we're kind of jumping ahead but you did those tours and I when we talked it was like you know you had tried doing your solo thing for a while I think worked with a handful of producers and were trying to find your sound like what was that like this before working with us there was the period of like you'd been working with Miley for a couple years or something Mm -hmm. and then got management and started I was living out here you lived out here in LA Mm -hmm. um I was just uh I was becoming the next everything (laughs) the next (laughs) Katy Perry the next Adele the next like Christina Aguilera, the next, like all of the, it was because I didn't know what I wanted. So these producers were like, okay, well, do you like this song? I'm like, yes, I like that song. I like pop music. Like it's, I like mm-hmm. listening to it. So they're like, okay, well, let's go this direction. And then it was this exhausting race that I felt like I was running Cause I was like, I'm getting older. I'm getting older. These songs aren't me. These songs aren't me. The sound isn't me. Like I'm not feeling this, and but I really want this to work, and um, and it just wasn't working. It wasn't time. Number one. Number two. You thought it wasn't working. Were other people thinking it was working? Or everybody, was it? because like what we were saying before, it was contrived, and I didn't believe in it a hundred percent. My truth wasn't in it, and like who I was as an artist and as a person and the things that I really loved. Aside from pop music, nothing was in that. But I also came from how things used to be, where you write, like, pop songs and the label pays for everything, and then you, like, go out and tour with these big artists. You know what I mean? Like, the weird weird transition and how the music industry was changing. We were at, like, the tail end of how everything used to be. So, like, in my mind, I was like, okay, we'll write pop songs, and then everything will just work out. And I didn't really know how to connect with my fans either because my sisters did all of that stuff. <laughs> um, not all of it, but I realize the importance of that now. But when we started talking, you were asking me all of the right questions that like matched me as a person, like who I wanted to sound like or not even who, like what I wanted to sound like and sending a picture of the sounds that the, or yeah, I, was, I remember asking like you, like, like me. yeah, what would your sound look like? Yeah, 
and I was like, whoa, this is fun. Like, this is, this is a process that I am excited to go down, like a road that I finally felt like I was going to be me. I think that's the first time I ever looked at Pinterest, too. So it was my... Oh, love Pinterest. Because <laughs> you Man, made a Pinterest page or you had one rolling and filled it up some more. And then you started sending me pictures of um, the jewelry that you made, which is mm. like feathers and beads. And, and then I looked at your, your <coughs> Pinterest, like your secret Pinterest page, and it was all um, just very like world, I guess, ethnic flavors and stuff. Mm. It just... what. I got to, by the time I got to the end of that and saw your jewelry, I was like, this is like gypsy feeling. Like, mm. And after talking to you, I knew that you had that nomadic spirit and spirit? Spirit. spirit in you of just <coughs> not wanting to be in the same place for very long and just just your the feeling that comes off of you as a person is very just like free. So like the, the, ver- the, the definition of gypsy that is kind of like the positive mm. gypsy definition, not the pickpocket pickpocket <laughs> but um so I was like what if the wheels are turning in my head I was like, what if we brought gypsy music because like if your visual aesthetic is is that what, what would it be if your sonic aesthetic was kind of rooted in that world music thing as opposed to it was a way of really like cleansing the palate like eating the ginger <laughs> it's like drinking the Kool-Aid but it's yeah. eating the ginger so that we could be like disconnected from what was going on in pop music and not feel that pull towards like, well, if this wants to, if we want this to work out, it's got to be beep yeah. bop boop. I mean, the second that I said it to you, you were like, ah, oh, <laughs> I yes. love that stuff, and it appealed to me as a drummer because those are all very rhythmic, groove oriented, heavily in percussion. Yet a lot of the rhythms in pop music mm-hmm. and R and B are kind of. Their history can be traced back to that stuff. Um, whether it's boom, boom, that stuff, or whatever it is, they kind of trace back to that. And then Gannon was inspired because of there's Django Reinhardt, Gypsy Jazz, there's uh, all the really cool scales that we could use, like the, yeah. the harmonic minor scales and different instruments. So I went on a rampage on the internet and bought, you know, like. Whatever I didn't have, I bought like a pair of tablas and a few different things and then got this thing called a kumbus, which is strange. It's like this Middle Eastern instrument that's like, it's almost like a banjo meets a guitar meets a sitar. Mm. And that became like a core instrument in like your music. Yeah. So we had written a few songs before that, but then once that clicked through and you responded so immediately to it, mm-hmm. it was super exciting. The next time you came there, we wrote a bunch of songs. The vibe was unbelievable. You said you finally liked her. Like that she. I finally <laughs> did. It took a while. I really liked it. We brought the blues into it too. Yeah. Should put a track on the end of this podcast. Yeah. 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 That's gonna be sure. Yeah, we'll play you a little hint. So, talk talk us through the EP. Track one. Um, track one is "Fell in Love with the Thief," which really falls into the more um, theatrical side of. The sound, I think, it's very even lyrically, um, it's it's playful and kind of dark, but fun, um, and it has like a lot of those worldly elements, the gypsy vibes, and um, I don't know, it's just a fun picture. I feel like I can 
picture the character singing in it too. Like obviously it's me, but. <coughs> um, well, it's you because you actually stole from me. I did. Okay, I'm not a friggin' klepto though. You're kind. Of, well, we'll get you tested. How do you get? How do you do that? I guess I have a lot of stuff in my hands. <laughs> well, what happens is like I don't know. I'm always playing with something. You maybe no gypsy is a thief. They just end up leaving with somebody else's stuff. <laughs> It's just who I am. But you love to hold things while you sing. Yeah. It's your little Sometimes I'll walk out the door with it and not realize it's still in my hand when I'm like five miles down the road. (laughs) And that's precisely what happened. Yeah. I know exactly the object. This happened in 2007 or something. And she just made good on it like a month ago. That's a long time. I stole a cube. It was a cube. And it had lit up. It was cool. And I was playing with it in the session forever ago and then I had it with me for years and years and years and I moved so many places and it always reminded me of Adam Watts <laughs> I was the cube yeah you were the cube and I was like oh, I can't throw this away I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again did it still light up or did you wear it out it wore out um Thanks. anything with a button on it I have to press it always <laughs> <laughs> um and then I think I lost it, and then weeks later at Disneyland, no, not weeks later, years later. Years. Um, actually, I think I lost it, like, a couple weeks before you texted me, because I had just moved really? that week, and I think I was like, ah. Maybe I felt it missing, and that's why Maybe. I reached out. Like, I was there, and then when I was yeah. gone, I was like, I'm not there anymore. Adam wants his cube. Your avatar was thrown away. My avatar. <laughs> <laughs> But that ice cube is a fake ice cube that it lights is. up with like a little, you got what are you like called? The little, uh, LED. little LED. LED. But it changed colors. But it was the ice cube at the Pop Awards when we won a Pop Award for Beautiful Soul at the Ooh, ASCAP yeah. Pop Awards. And it, had it, it had it written on there. And I was like, I wouldn't normally keep little things like that. But I was like, oh, this is a cool... It's like in our glasses. And I brought it home. And she... Uh, I'm gonna I hold was, this. Well, I, yeah, I was playing with it the entire session and yeah. then took it. And I didn't know it was missing. Yeah. So anyway, I went to Disneyland like a month ago. Disney. Yeah. Well, Disneyland. Yeah. Um, and there, I got a drink and there was an ice cube that was lighting up and I looked at my cup. I was like, <gasps> I was like this is exactly like the one I stole. So I am. So you stole that one. I, <laughs> <laughs> A circle. <laughs> Technically, I bought it. I bought it because it came with my drink. Though they didn't have like return ice cube here bins. Like that's true. <laughs> like with the 3D glasses. So I, I, he has one now. Yeah, she brought so, it back. She made good. Thief is track number one. Track number two is actually a new song, like days new. Days new. Called Monsters, and it's amazing. And when you listen to it, it's like kind of uncomfortable. Like, but in a good way. Um, and it it kind of, like, lyrically breaks up the EP because it's... Have you heard it? I have not. <gasps> you haven't listened yet? I have <gasps> the email, the, the unopened email. I've been traveling. You've been traveling. Good, I'm glad, because if I didn't hear from you, I'm like, what? Is this a dud? We don't know it? No, it is That's not. That's good. So... Really I will listen cool. tonight, I promise. That'll be the song that we preview at the end of this podcast. So look, yes. you'll, you'll hear this, but... Monsters, songs start all kinds of different ways for us because we're all, we all feel like best idea wins and the definition of best idea is just, what does it feel like? This idea had been in 
Gannon's pocket for months too, right? Yeah, months. For months. You had the idea and we loved the melody and then it just randomly, I walked in like two days ago and you guys were working on it. Yeah. And it was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I can always remember it. That's yeah. how you know yeah. like it's totally. actually worth keeping. Yeah. Because like sometimes you feel real bad right now. <laughs> Okay. I, wish, I wish I had listened to it. Oh, you, you'll hear it tonight. I can't wait. Dude, it's... Yay, I'm so excited to hear it. I'm proud of that one. I think that one came out really good. So good. It was cool. Like, Gannon's been on this stint where, like, I wake up at, like, we both wake up really early for some reason. Yeah, I don't Maybe. want to. <laughs> you don't, I do. want to, I don't want to, but you do. And I come out to the studio and, like, spend from 6.30 or 7 o'clock until you get here around 10.30 just doing, whether I'm writing or just call it casting lines I'm just like texting me waking texting me up. you waking you up yeah just going nuts in here with my Storyville coffee hashtag Storyville not and a sponsor of not a show. sponsor yeah so I'll add that out um, but what Gannon's often doing in the morning at his house is like writing or writing on the way up into his phone and this must have been gargoyles in her stomach um, it was loud uh, her stomach growled so you brought this song up maybe five months ago. It's yeah, been a long time. And played me like, it was like a four bar little phrase that you had, the title and a couple lines. It's like, dude, that's awesome. And you're singing it all up. There's monsters. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, are you Rusi? I got excited, showed you, you loved it. We started developing it a tiny bit, but then like it wasn't the day we were working on something else, but it just kept coming back to our minds. Mm-hmm. And the other day, I was like, today just feels like the monster's day. Have you been saying that melody in, like, when I was home in Nashville, randomly, if somebody said something about monsters, or I, like, <laughs> I remembered it, and I hadn't even heard it that often, or that yeah. much. We just did that one. Anyway, it's really cool, and we figured out the lyrical vibe of it, and it's, like, it's stories, it's, it's people's stories, and, like, we all have our crap, and, like... Oh, I don't know. I don't even want to explain it. I want people to listen to it. It's super yeah. good. I'm at, I'm really excited about it. Especially I want to hear Mike's reaction. Track number three. But I love that idea because we didn't have real quick on monsters. It's a it's a cool one for all of us because we're all friends and like we're all aware of the little like everybody has their personal demons mm-hmm. whether it's like dealing with anxiety or depression or stress or just life circumstances and like those are those are our monsters like and so we we wanted to paint pictures of just tell the those kind of stories Mm -hmm. with that with that metaphor and the chorus too like there's so many times where you there's there's monsters around you and you're feeling attacked and like you're blaming everything else for your problems when like the last part of the chorus is um there's monsters wait what is it it's my blood that they bleed. There's monsters in the room tonight, and every one of them look like me. And it's that realization of, like, I need to look inside of myself here, and it's me. They're me. Like, this is this is something internally happening inside myself. And then you go back outside of yourself and the verses to a, a girl on the streets struggling, and then to a man that has lost his mind and completely forgot who he used to be, like, whether he was a veteran or, um, like... I don't know, a pastor or somebody. Like, you want to know the story so bad. Then it goes back into the chorus where you're, like, like you're thrown into their mind thinking the same thing. And the bridge is, like, this 
horrible ride that you want to get off of, but kind of accepting your fears at the end of it. Like, um, my fears become my friends. Like, they make you stronger and they push you forward and, you know, it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, track number three is called It Only Hurts When I'm Awake, which is kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. <laughs> um, about <laughs> any, any kind of loss or heartache or heartbreak or... And what's the fourth song? Fourth, fourth song is the title track, Honey Cloud. It's fun. It was an idea that Adam had a while back that we all finished together, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I like that one because it had a kind of Beatlesque vibe to it. Yeah, it definitely like has in the chorus. Vibes. Yeah, the, like the bass line and everything. Yeah. I like that. The EP is an awesome mix of what we've built. Like, it has the dark side, it has the gypsy vibes, and it has, like, the more kind of like old school yeah. vibes in there. It's definitely like, encapsulates everything we've been working on for yeah. the last year and a half or yeah. however long it's been. Honey Cloud could be. Go ahead. Nothing. I was just going to just gonna be like, Honey Cloud EP, hashtag Arusi, hashtag 2015. <laughs> that day by <laughs> Plug, 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 plug. Sure, sure. It's exciting though, man. It's like, it's so strange when you start to think about trying to look at things from a record label perspective or like monetization it's like a real it's a it's a real like a dead end that you run into when you think that way I, I think this is this must be how the HBO producers feel the original programming yeah you know getting away from the network mm. yeah. breaking free and just creating great stuff with no oversight yeah that's exactly where we're at right now just sure. release what we've been working on yeah. And hope that people connect to it. And I know they will because there's truth behind it, you know? Exactly. And that's what I think most people tend to, like, believe. Mm -hmm. If the artist is believable. Yeah. So let's wrap up our awesome podcast today. Yeah. I have to go check and see if the kids burnt down your backyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great time to wrap it up then. <laughs> well, this was fun. We, have to, yeah. we will be doing many more of these. So. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yes. And you'll hear a new Irusi track. Yes. Yeah, at the end of this, we'll preview Monsters. This is... The very first and first of many. Every week we're going to give you guys a, a podcast where we'll talk about whatever. Very. Hopefully things. it'll be different things every time. <laughs> no, we'll just talk about our bi uh, biographical information. Like that. <laughs> yeah. When I was ten. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Should I play our song out? Yes. I don't remember. There's it. No way you remember it. There we go. Ready. Oh, wait, you're over here. <laughs> Brought to you by Broken City Artists. Peace out, yo. I'm the killer, the victim, and I'm the